Today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 to 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as a sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Well, good morning. It's so good to be able to see real people in church this morning. So good to be part of uh, many homes. Uh, it's a great thing to share in God's word together as we do. But what a strange passage. Any skeptic looking at this passage might quickly ask, what kind of God tricks his follower into thinking he has to kill his own son? And what kind of religion says you should go and sacrifice your child just because God said so? What sort of a father does what Abraham did. So there's some pretty serious questions that we have to answer here. However, 
as we look carefully at the text and at the rest of the Bible, we're going to see that this is not a story about God abusing Abraham or Abraham abusing Isaac. To be really clear, this passage is not about sacrificing something to God in order to win his acceptance. Never say to yourself, Oh no, I could never sacrifice my son. I I just don't have that much faith. I don't have faith like Abraham. Oh no, I'll never be acceptable to God. You see, God never asks Christians to sacrifice anything to win his approval. In fact, a careful reading of this text is going to totally flip that idea for us. So uh, through Genesis 22, we are going to see two key things. God will never demand we atone for our own sins through our own sacrifice. And God himself will provide atonement through a sacrifice of his own making. That word atonement could very simply be read as bringing two parties back together again because the sin that separated them has been fully dealt with. Okay, that's what atonement means. So the passage is saying God will never demand that we atone for our own sins through sacrifice. God himself will provide atonement through a sacrifice of his own making. How do we know that's what the passage is actually saying? Because the text itself tells us. So first we're going to check that out, and then we're going to think about some implications. One of the first things we notice in any narrative is always what the narrator is saying. And in Genesis 22, the Holy Spirit-inspired narrator makes two key interpretive statements for us. The first in verse 1, and then uh, immediately after the climax of the action in verse 14. So looking at your Bibles, hopefully you've got one with you, uh, we see that the narrator begins by telling us, verse 1, sometime later God tested Abraham, and then the story launches with God speaking to Abraham. And to get to the meaning of this story then, we're going to need to understand what it means for God to test Abraham. That's going to be important. And then there's the narrator's conclusion uh, to the action in verse 14. So verse 13, Abraham looks up and he sees in the thicket uh, a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And here comes the narrator. So... Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So when the climax of the action is all done, in verse 14, the narrator explains its meaning. This whole situation is resolved. We're told that Abraham has called that place, the Lord will provide. So whatever it was that is being tested in verse 1, is made clear now through the naming of the place. So significant is that name, many years later, when the narrator actually writes it down, everybody still knows that Genesis 22 is all about, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So if we put together the beginning and the end of the action, we're told that something is being tested, and the outcome is, everybody knows 
that the Lord provides the sacrifice on his mountain. So it turns out this passage is not all about the sacrifices that we have to provide to God. Instead, we are to know that God provides the sacrifice for us. That's the punchline. And the narrator's job is to make sure that we get that punchline. So there's a quick overview of the whole passage. Let's see now how Genesis 22 kind of takes us to that conclusion. So as we said, verse 1, the scene is set. We're told that God is testing Abraham. And it's how we understand that word test that is essential. We usually think of a test as an exam with a result. You either pass or you fail. And so for Abraham, if, if this is what it was about to be tested in this sense, would mean God's going to find out something. He's going to discover something he did not know about Abraham to see if he's good enough or devout enough to be accepted. In that case, he would be putting before him the toughest possible test. Would God do, sorry, would Abraham do what God told him to? As though Abraham was going to be given an eternal thumbs up or thumbs down depending upon what he did on that day. But the verb test doesn't always mean a pass or fail examination. In Hebrew, it could also mean to prove or to refine something. So when you test gold or you prove gold, you heat it up in a crucible uh, so that any dross that is there is removed and the purity of the gold is verified, it's demonstrated. And so testing in this sense is an experience that demonstrates or proves something. What is already true is revealed and made clear to those who are looking on. And so at the outset of this narrative, we're told that something in relation to Abraham is going to be proven is going to be verified. For now, we don't exactly know what it is about Abraham that is going to be proven or demonstrated, but we're on the lookout for it now. And whatever it is, as the action now develops in verses 2 through 7, Abraham gathers up Isaac and everything he needs for a sacrifice, well, almost everything, right? And they go off to Mount Moriah. And I don't know how you felt as we began to read this narrative once again, but the closer they get to the mountain, the more I'm wanting to scream out, stop, <laughs> don't do something. Abraham seems so cool. Abraham, how can you do this? And I don't think Abraham knows exactly what's going to happen, but somehow he knows that the story is not going to end in Isaac's death. Do you notice what he says to his servants in verse 5? As he leaves them behind to head off up the mountain with Isaac, he says to them, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come back. He's confident that God's plan to bless the world through Isaac's family will not fail. In the book of Hebrews, we're actually given a little extra insight into Abraham's thinking at this moment. So in Hebrews 11, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. 
He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. We don't know exactly what Abraham was thinking, but we know he fully expected that he was returning home with Isaac. And this from a man who was very, very familiar with sacrificing your children to the gods. In the uh, 2017 publication Live Science, uh, there was this article listing 25 ancient cultures we know practice human sacrifice. Very stimulating reading, right? But here is, here's what we learned. One was the city of Ur. The great death pit at the ancient city of Ur in modern-day Iraq contains the remains, dating back about 4,600 years, of 68 women and six men, many of which appear to have been sacrificed. The ancient city of Ur. Sound familiar, right? Genesis 11 tells us this is Abraham's hometown. This is where he grew up. Human sacrifice had been going on there for centuries before him. His was a culture that thought you have to sacrifice your all to win the favour of the gods. But it seems Abraham already knows God well enough to know that he is entirely the opposite kind of God. That whole pagan idea is being turned on its head. The God of the Bible is not the kind that we try to buy off with our sacrifices, with our piety, with our showy display of devotion of any kind. And that's why he's so cool. That's why he's able to reassure Isaac in verses 7 and 8. Isaac's getting a little nervous, I think, going up the hill. Father, we've got everything except something to sacrifice. Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The two of them went on together. Abraham is demonstrating that he knows God. He is confident that he is not the kind of pagan deity that demands to be bought off or plied with precious gifts and outrageous acts of devotion. The God of the Bible never asks for sacrifice to buy blessing. Instead, Abraham trusts that God will be true to his promise to bless the world through his son Isaac. And so when God comes through with the ram for the sacrifice, and I have no idea why God allowed things to go on as far as he did, but when he does, Abraham makes explicit what has been implicit all along. He knows that God provides. God provides everything necessary for salvation. So in verse 14, we have that conclusion. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it said, on the mountain of the Lord, the Lord, it will be provided. So through this event, God has proven Abraham, demonstrating how different he is to all of those pagan worshippers in his native Ur. Abraham knows that God takes the initiative and that he provides. And it's got to be the case, right? Because 
we can never buy God off. We can never pay enough to make ourselves acceptable to him. No, God provides everything necessary for salvation. And he asks us then to rely on him for that provision. And so with the benefit now of of hindsight, we can look back on this event and see that actually it's prophetic in nature. This event, I think, is so gruesome, so horrible against the backdrop of child sacrifice only because God is preparing us to understand what he will go through later on, centuries later, in Jesus Christ. I love the prophetic juxtapositioning in verse 8. I just made that up. Um, But you can use that through the week, right? And you can impress your friends. Um, Have a look at the prophetic juxtapositioning in verse 8. Say that at Bible study. See what happens. Okay. Isaac, a little nervous. Father, we've got everything, but where's the lamb? What's the plan? Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The juxtaposition of the words, my son, right after God himself will provide the lamb, point forward to the fact that God only is the one who sacrifices his son to bring about salvation. It's God's son alone who dies willingly to bring us back to God, to make atonement. Only that singular event in the centre of human history, the cross of Christ, warrants such an extreme prophetic foretelling as this event with Abraham and Isaac. Indeed, you know, Mount Moriah, where this is taking place, many years later, it becomes the city of Jerusalem, the place where God's Son will be provided as the lamb of sacrifice for the sin of the world. This prophetic pre-enactment takes place on the very spot that it will take place in the death and resurrection of Christ. You see, the only sacrifice that really makes a difference and puts things right between us and God is the one that God has already provided. We're still in Genesis 22 now. There's an interesting follow-up to this narrative in verses 15 through 18. After the sacrifice of the ram, God speaks again to Abraham and he makes this promise, a series of promises to bless Abraham. And for a moment, just for a nanosecond, it looks like because of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, God will reward him with all of these incredible things. Great payback, Abraham. But on closer inspection, we realise, hang on a minute, there's nothing new here. God had already promised all of these things to Abraham before Abraham had done anything. And if we'd had time, we could just quickly check back to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, or 15, 4 to 6, and 15 through 7. You can do that in your spare time. But Abraham's actions here on Mount Moriah don't earn him anything. It is not a pass-fail, win-lose test. Instead, this is all about Abraham's refined and assured understanding of God and his promises. God is the one who will provide, even as he has already promised 
to bless all people through Isaac's offspring. Now, if we were making up our own God and making up our own religion, we would want to probably skip this bit. We would not put this in our holy writings. But we don't get to tell God how it's going to be. He does. And although there are lots of difficult questions that are raised by this passage, I think the most striking is the seriousness of our sin. The problem is so great that it requires to be fixed with the payment of a death. It requires a death. This narrative shows us afresh how confronting that is. I understand this is extremely offensive to many people. But the frightful reality of this judgment is actually front and centre here at Mount Moriah. And yet most wonderfully, Genesis 22 is all about how God provides the substitute. His son's death provides for our sins to be completely removed. God provides everything that's necessary for our salvation in full. He is merciful. And so, feeding off God's grace here, we now live as though we were sacrificed to him. In view of his mercy, we are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, as it says in Romans 12, verse 1. And on the other side of this coin of sacrifice, sometimes we might feel the need to kind of contribute a little bit more to our salvation. You know, maybe with some great spiritual quest or some display of piety or, or some incredible self-sacrifice. In this situation, Genesis 22 says the same thing. There's no need because God provides the sacrifice, everything necessary for our salvation. So let's allow Genesis 22 to prove and refine our faith. Notice Abraham abandoned all other insurances against God's provision. He was completely committed to God providing the sacrifice. If God didn't come through that day, it was going to go badly. We're not told, but I don't imagine that Abraham had one of those trick rubber knives, you know, just in case nothing happened. Uh, from God's side of things. And I'm pretty certain he hadn't sent a servant up the mountain the day before with a spare ram to be caught in the thicket just in case God didn't provide. There were no insurances. There were no backstops because he was all in on God as provider. If you've been a Christian for a while, as I have, we need to beware of hedging our faith in Jesus Christ. Taking out insurance against Jesus. No. Leaving that behind, we go all in on him. What do I mean by insurance? Well, there's that temptation to make sure we have all of our fun now, just in case heaven is disappointing. There's the temptation to make sure we have lots of financial security now, just in case. Who knows what could be around the corner? 
Another kind of insurance could be investing yourself now in all of the right friendships, the right friends who will make me feel good, who will make me feel nice, who will make me look good, just in case life with Jesus is hard. Or perhaps there's the insurance where we dare not say no to anything, just in case we miss out on something. The result is, of course, our lives are so busy, our relationship with God gets crowded out and put on the margins. Oh, it's there. It's like a fashion accessory. Genesis 22 calls us to abandon all of the just-in-cases. Instead, we know God provides everything necessary for our salvation. And so he asks us to rely on him completely for his provision. Will you pray with me? Now, God and Father, forgive us for the times that we take out insurance, that we think we have to manage the situation. We thank you so much that you have provided the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has willingly given himself that we may be fully restored. We ask, Lord God, that we would therefore live as living sacrifices and take great joy in being all in for you. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, thanks, Stu. We have an uh, opportunity for some Q&A. So the first one is this. The passage seems like God's promises are conditional and required obedience. Uh, and if not, the promises would fall away. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, it, it's worth considering what happens if Abraham fails here? The interesting thing is that the promises have already been made, haven't they, long before this. So I referred back to chapter 12. Uh, so if you look back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God has already made the promises there uh, about uh, Abraham's offspring and about bringing blessing to all nations through his offspring. There's no condition there. It's just like, I'm going to do this, Abraham, and it's going to happen through you. So um, the thought that there is any kind of, well, if you mess this up, Abraham, it's not going to work. Already we've seen through the Genesis narrative, Abraham's done a pretty good job of messing it up so far. He's had a few you know, goes at, well, maybe I could have a son with uh, Hagar, or you know, maybe I could swap my wife for my sister or something crazy with these foreign kings. Abraham's done a pretty good job of messing up so far, and yet God has still worked his promises through that. And the cool thing is, and I think, Mel, you mentioned this last week in your sermon, through this we see Abraham growing. Abraham's understanding of who God is develops, and this is kind of like the high point. We realise how much he's come to know his God. So um, through the Abraham narrative, the promises uh, don't seem conditional, and uh, Abraham's own life demonstrates, hey, they're not. God is determined to bring blessing to all nations through him. So, yeah. You mentioned being a living sacrifice. What does that mean and how can we do it? Yeah. Um, that's in Romans 12, verse 1. And uh, again, worth flipping over to if you wish. And it begins, In view of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So this idea of a living sacrifice begins with God's mercy. Okay, as you look back on God's incredible kindness and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ for us as Christian people, 
seeing how he has done everything necessary for our salvation. So because it doesn't hinge on what we do, but on God's great kindness, therefore we live kind of as though we had been sacrificed, as, as though kind of like our whole life is gone anyway. We're the people who've been given a new life, a total new start, and so we want to live entirely focused on God. It's kind of like living in gratitude for the one who has saved your life. And so the concept of being living sacrifices, I actually find quite a stimulating thing. It means that I'm all in for God. It means that uh, everything that matters to me, everything that's important, and actually everything that is going to satisfy me all comes from being fully for God. How do we do that? Well, I'm not going to tell you how to live every last moment of your life, but the key thing is to recognize how much God has loved you. The more we focus on God's mercy and his grace and what we've been saved from, the more our life will definitely want to reflect that. So that's kind of step one. There's a whole New Testament to read about how to do the rest, but let me encourage you with that. In view of God's mercy, live as a living sacrifice. There's, there's quite a few um, questions coming through. We're not going to get to answer them all, so you can email Stu during the week. But why don't we uh, end off with this one. Uh, what does the story look uh, like through, uh, through Isaac's eyes? Quite a stunning thought, isn't it? What does Isaac make of all of this? Um, and that would hinge a lot on how old also Isaac is. Um, Isaac is old enough to carry the firewood. So I'm thinking... He's old enough to figure out, hang on a minute, we need a sacrificial animal here. How's this going to play out? Um, Isaac displays incredible uh, trust in Abraham, doesn't he? Okay, Dad, how's this going to work? Throughout, he displays trust in Abraham. I imagine if Isaac wanted to fight his 125-year-old father... When he's strong enough to carry the firewood, he could have. He could have done a runner. Somehow or other, he didn't. So we don't know and we're not told what Isaac knows. But we know one thing about Isaac. We know that Isaac, more than anybody, understands God's readiness to provide. Isaac will never forget that God is gracious And God, in fact, is the one who takes care of salvation completely.